Hi there. I'm Mark Legere, the Huddle producer who helps edit Don and David's podcast each week. In early January, we're planning a special edition of the podcast, an opportunity for you to ask David and Don about the big issues for the region's economy in 2023. Do you have a question for them? Send us an email at news at huddle.today and we'll get it on the list for David and Don. That's news at huddle.today. Now on with the show. Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, while you're enjoying the, uh, the vacation in Brazil, I had a really interesting conversation with Sean Kirby, the executive director of the Mining Association of Nova Scotia. And mining is a uh, often forgotten uh, sector of our economy. But it's going to become uh, way more important uh, if we want to achieve net zero by 2050. And this was a good conversation to understand why um, mining is going to become more important. Yeah, mining used to be, uh, as you know, a very, very important uh, sector in Nova Scotia and Cape Breton. All along the, the northern shore of the uh, northern area of Nova Scotia, there's lots of history. There's mining museums. There's all kinds of uh, relics of that history. Uh, but in recent years, the GDP contribution from mining has dropped to very, very low in Nova Scotia. And in New Brunswick, it's down 80% since the closure of the zinc mine and the potash mine. So, yeah, so I guess I'm very interested to hear uh, what you and Sean talked about. I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but I think it's very, very important to start talking about mining. Uh, there's a national strategy, and uh, and why shouldn't New Brunswick and Nova Scotia get our share of that economic activity and, and provide uh, a share of these critical uh, minerals that are going to be needed to help us reach net zero by 2050? Yeah, and the industry is still important to Nova Scotia. You know, it uh, supports... 5,500 jobs and produces about $400 million of GDP value to the province. So it's still sizable, but it could be a lot, uh, a lot bigger, obviously. And uh, as you mentioned, the feds just came out with a new uh, program, understanding the, uh, the importance of critical minerals. I think they put a $4 billion in a fund to allow a 30% credit to uh, concentrate on critical minerals. I think there are 31 um, that they're uh, targeting, uh, but some of them are disproportionately important. So uh, Sean, uh, Sean mentioned uh, EVs as an example. EVs uh, take uh, two and a half times the number of microchips that a normal car does. And what people might not understand that uh, gold is a big uh, part of those uh, uh, microchips because they provide stable, stable, you know, connections, and so gold is going to be an important source of uh, minerals for that. Uh, also, batteries, lithium, cobalt, those sort of uh, minerals are going to disproportionately go up. In fact, uh, it's estimated that the demand for critical min minerals will increase by six times to support the net zero strategy by 2040, six times. Now here's the problem. The problem is, is that you just don't go and start a mine tomorrow. The, the lead time to create and develop mines can vary, but it could be anywhere from five years to 25 years. The good news for places like Nova Scotia, there are some previous mining operations that could be restarted 
relatively quickly, but there are others that you have to go out and find the, min the minerals first of all, and then you have to go through a very long environmental assessment and permitting uh, cycle. And uh, so it takes quite a while to bring new mines on on stream, and this is the challenge. And 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 what the uh, industry associations like the Nova Scotia Mining Association is is trying to do is to try to get the red tape reduced. But they're also trying to uh, foster an environment for exploration. So one of the things that uh, Sean and his sector are are doing is uh, to um, I guess advocate for funding a minerals play fairway. Now what this is is a proposal for geophysical surveys across the province that would help identify areas with potential for critical minerals and increase our knowledge of the province's geography. This, by the way, was done in the past for the offshore oil and gas industry. So it's a, it's a pretty good idea. It would help encourage exploration of the minerals in the province. Probably should be done in New Brunswick uh, as well because, you know, you want to create an environment where people um, – see the support of government for mining. This is one of the problems that we have in this region. A jurisdiction like Nova Scotia is actually seen to be a less desirable place to do mining in general. And so we have to uh, move away from that kind of uh, perception. So, you know, I think that that's, uh, that's an opportunity for the government uh, to, uh, to think about and, and, and to uh, uh, maybe uh, put some money behind. Yeah, the New Brunswick government did something similar back in the 50s and 60s, initial geo uh, work uh, to, you know, I mean, it's like any other sector of the economy. You're trying to identify your assets and then, you know, present those assets to potential investors. Uh, and I don't see why this would be any different. There's, there'd be good investment of taxpayer dollars, you know, to find out what minerals are there, where they are, uh, at least at a high level, do that, that initial and then allow the developers to come in and, and do a more proper assessment of the opportunity. Uh, one of the ones you didn't mention, of course, that's really on the radar now nationally mm. because of the rise of the nuclear sector is uranium mining. And of course, you will remember back in around 2010, there was a proposal to do a uranium mine in New Brunswick, and it was rigorously opposed by environmentalists and community groups and mayors, uh, and the project went nowhere. There's still, I had a neighbor uh, up to a few months ago, still had no uranium mining sign in his window uh, in downtown. <laughs> this is really a problem of misinformation. And, uh, you know, Nova Scotia has had a ban on uranium mining since the 80s, I guess. And uh, one of the things that Sean pointed out, which I think people need to understand, is that uranium is important for health. It's used in radiation. And without uranium, we wouldn't be able to treat people for things like cancer. So, like, we need uranium, we, and, and, and it's been mined in Canada for decades in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan, the second biggest producer of uranium in the, in the world, <clears throat> done it safely for 60 or 70 years. So, like, we have, we have examples that it can be mined safely, and uh, that's the point that, that, that Sean was making. So, uh, you know, we need to open our minds a little bit to the, the you know, the real facts about uranium mining, and, of course, they're that would take some time to overcome the resistance that's currently there. Did you talk about getting community support and public buy-in for mining? It seems to be, you know, I know for the few projects that have been established or started in New Brunswick, even First Nations, there's been concerns 
did you talk at all about how you get communities and First Nations and other other folks to come on side and support uh, this sector? We didn't get deep into that uh, conversation, but uh, one of the things you'll be interested to know is that one of the podcasts we had with uh, Everwind Fuels, uh, they're currently doing public consultation sessions um, uh, around the area where they're going to operate. So I think it's a lesson for everybody. Like you need to have the support of the community uh, and indigenous communities in particular to be able to be successfully uh, do new project. It's just the, it's the, it's the new reality. And I, I'm, I'm sure that the mining industry is uh, cognizant of that uh, requirement as well. So we're going to be so doing very, other, other podcasts yeah. on mining, yeah. Don, but this is the first in the series. So I'm sure the guests are going to learn a lot or excuse me, our less, listeners are going to learn a lot. And I, I will too. So with that uh, rather long, but important, I think, introduction, here's our conversation with Sean Kirby. On this episode of the Insights Podcast, we are pleased to be uh, joined by Sean Kirby, the Executive Director of the Nova Scotia Mining Association. Sean, welcome to our podcast. Good morning. Thanks, John. Uh, let's begin by finding out a little bit about uh, your background and your path to your present role with the uh Mining Association of Nova Scotia. How did your career get started? Well, I'm a government relations and communications expert. I had the opportunity uh, when I was uh, in my early 20s to work for a while in the federal government. And since then, I've done various things in the private sector. I was uh, vice president and partner at a couple of different government relations consulting firms, for example. And 10 years ago, actually, I had the opportunity to join the Mining Association of Nova Scotia, and it's uh, just been fantastic. I love working in the industry. The people are great. Uh, the work's important. Mining provides the raw materials that make everything in our daily lives possible. Uh, and it's just a really interesting uh, uh, industry that's so important to our daily lives. So it's been a great experience. We'd like to begin by uh, looking at the current economic impact of mining in Nova Scotia. How big is the industry currently and uh, how many direct and indirect jobs does it, uh, does it support? So we're a pretty big uh, industry in the province. We've, of course, been a mining jurisdiction for centuries here in Nova Scotia. Uh, these days, we employ over 3,000 Nova Scotians, about 2,200 of them uh, directly. Uh, and obviously, we're a big employer in rural areas in particular because that's where most mines and quarries are located. So uh, given the challenges that rural areas face these days, we are one of the, the solutions to that in terms of creating jobs and economic opportunity that allow people to stay in uh, their rural communities. Uh, we're the highest paying resource industry in Nova Scotia. Our average total compensation is about $102,000 a year. That's wages plus benefits. And our total GDP contribution to the province is about $409 million a year. So we're a pretty big industry. We believe there's all kinds of potential for the industry to continue to grow and to create more jobs for Nova Scotians. But uh, we're, we're pretty proud of the work we're doing today and look, look forward to doing more of it as we go forward. Your association's current campaign is about informing the public that it, it is not your grandfather's mining <laughs> sector. Uh, how is mining different uh, today from mining in the past? Well, the, the short answer is it's completely different from mining in the past. And this is really one of the biggest challenges that we face as an industry. So many people's perceptions of mining date from the you know historical period. They think often of uh, black and white pictures and soot-covered faces. And the reality is that modern mining is just completely different. It's a sophisticated, modern, high-tech, science-based business that takes excellent care of the environment uh, and is, uh, has a 
extremely strong record on uh, worker safety, for example. We have reduced in Nova Scotia our injury rate by 90% since the Westray Public Inquiry report came out in 1997. So it's just really a completely different industry from what uh, people often think it is. And, and part of our job as an association uh, and as uh, our member companies is to just try to help people understand that, to provide the information and the factual uh, you know, evidence that they need to understand that modern mining is completely different from what it was historically. And that's why we use that line, not your grandfather's mining industry, uh, because we really need people to, to understand that the industry has changed so much over the years. And it is today just a very sophisticated, modern, science-based business. There seems to be a lot of resistance to mining uh, in this region, Maritimes probably more than Newfoundland and Labrador, and especially in Nova Scotia. Why do you think that is the case? I think a lot of that does come back to the misconceptions about the industry, that so many people's understanding of it really stems from past generations. And look, we completely agree that historical practices weren't good enough. They didn't take proper care of the environment. They didn't take care of uh, worker safety or, or really anything. But we also have to put that in context of the fact that, you know, that th those were the standards of the time. You know, environmental awareness isn't something that started really until the late 1900s. So I don't know that we can hold, you know, miners in the 1800s uh, responsible for their environmental impacts. They just didn't know any better. They didn't have the science. They didn't have the understanding of, of human uh, human impacts on the environment. But again, that's why the modern industry is so different. I mean, it's uh, just night and day different from what it was historically. We are extremely focused on taking care of the environment and ensuring that all uh, operational aspects are you know appropriate and modern and, and meet the highest standards. Uh, and at the same time, we also are you know an industry that provides raw materials that contribute to everything in our daily lives. Uh, there's nothing in the room around you that hasn't been made possible. Uh, if not entirely, at least to some extent, by the mining industry. And that is something that I think we just need people to understand that the industry gets it. We understand that we can't be uh, what we were in the past. Who would want to be, quite frankly, uh, given the safety issues and the environmental impacts? And the industry has just changed so much from, from what people often think it uh, you know, is and based on what it was historically. Well, tell us about the kinds of minerals and materials uh, that are currently mined in Nova Scotia. Maybe, you know, give us a kind of the, which ones are the, are the biggest ones. We've been a mining jurisdiction for centuries. So, you know, the, the number of things we have mined over uh, the years is, is long. Currently, we mine a variety of things like gold and aggregate, coal, sand, uh, gypsum, limestone and salt. Uh, certainly salt, as an example, is one that is being made heavy use of uh, currently, given uh, the weather we have right now, because, of course, all the uh, road salt on Nova Scotia's roads and highways comes from a, a mine in Pugwash. Uh, and so salt is saving lives today, uh, as, it, uh, as it does year in, year out. Um, one thing that we're very excited about is that in 2023, we expect a past producing zinc mine in Gaze River to get back into production. Uh, zinc is one of the uh, critical minerals that are considered so important these days because uh, things like electric vehicles, wind turbines and solar panels rely on critical minerals. And of course, they're essential to meeting climate goals. So uh, we hope to get back into zinc mining in 2023 and, uh, and back into critical minerals production. Yeah, historically, we've had uh, many mines for minerals that today are considered critical minerals because of their role in green technologies, things like copper, manganese, tungsten and graphite. 
Uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s, the East Kempville tin mine in Yarmouth County was in fact the largest tin mine in the world uh, until unfortunately uh, global tin prices collapsed in the early 90s and the mine had to shut down. But the deposit is still there. One thing about our industry is that, you know, unless a deposit is actually completely extracted, it's still there and can always, uh, you know, you can always go back to it. And so that mine is there and we hope that uh, sometime in the not too distant future, the East Kempville tin mine might get back into production. It's also actually an interesting example of how uh, society's needs for minerals change over time. We know today that the East Kempville tin deposit also contains indium and indium is another critical mineral. It's used, for example, in all touch screens and our electronics and used in uh, solar panels. So that would be, you know, a way to strengthen the business case for the East Kempville tin mine that it could also extract the indium that's there. So, you know, we do a, a lot of mining in the province today. We always have. Uh, but there's all kinds of potential for us to get into the critical minerals, uh, for example, that are so important to meeting climate goals. So there's lots of excitement in the industry uh, here. And we're just, uh, you know, working away at trying to uh, create jobs for Nova Scotians and extract the materials that society needs. You recently wrote a really interesting op-ed that outlined the increasing demand for minerals to support the net zero emission goals by 2050. Can you give us uh, a few examples of how the demand for min minerals in general will increase and, and, and lead to this demand? So the, the big focus of the global mining industry is what, what we call critical minerals today. So it's things like lithium and copper, uh, that are really essential in green technologies like electric vehicles, wind turbines, solar panels and batteries, uh, things of that nature. Um, you know, to meet the climate goals being set by the government of Nova Scotia and governments around the world requires huge increases in mining of these minerals in particular. The International Energy Agency uh, estimates that about six times more mineral inputs are required uh, to achieve uh, net zero by 2050. Countless other reports and studies have also come to similar conclusions that we need massive new increases in critical minerals uh, mining in order to build all the electric vehicles and wind turbines, et cetera, uh, that we need. Uh, the problem, of course, is that you know, we need hundreds of new mines around the world in order to provide these minerals, but the process by which we explore and develop and get permits and open new mines is so difficult and takes so long uh, that the number of mines simply aren't there in the world today. The resources exist in, in the geology, but we don't have the mines in the world today to meet the, the mineral demand for green technologies. And so again, countless reports predict that there will be mineral shortages, and this is a huge obstacle that all climate change uh, plans and goals face. And so here in Nova Scotia, bringing it back home, we absolutely have the potential for a whole bunch of these minerals. In many cases, we've extracted them previously, so we know that they're there in our geology. And we wanna to contribute to global supply of, of critical minerals and help uh, you know, governments around the world uh, achieve their, their climate goals. Uh, and at the same time, doing so would help create jobs for Nova Scotians and help generate uh, revenues for governments that help pay for things like health and education. So it's, a, it's an exciting time uh, for the industry here in Nova Scotia and around the world. There's such a tremendous demand uh, for critical minerals and potential, but it's also an extraordinary challenge uh, that the global mining industry faces trying to fulfill that demand. It's not a, an easy task. And so, you know, certainly we look to, uh, you know, uh, the government here in Nova Scotia and the government of Canada uh, to work with the mining industry, uh, industries in Canada to, uh, you know, help us achieve that extraordinary task. 
As you mentioned earlier, the mining industry is disproportionately important to rural communities across the province, yet there's often uh, resistance to mines from an environmental perspective, as we talked about. And the regulatory process to approve new mining projects take a long time before a new mine can be approved. Can you tell us about the regulatory process in place in Canada relative to other provinces across the country? So, again, I mean, the concerns a lot of people have about mining, I really think are rooted in the practices of the distant past. I mean, and it's, and it's perfectly uh, fair and legitimate to say that the practices of the past weren't good enough. We agree. Uh, but at the same time, things are completely different today. Mining in, a country, in Nova Scotia and, and across Canada is one of the most stringently regulated industries uh, in terms of all its operational aspects. And, and ultimately, you know, nothing is more important than properly taking care of the environment and worker safety. Uh, and those are the goals of the industry and the goals of the governments that regulate the industry. So uh, it's just completely different, I think, from what people often expect. At the same time, uh, as I was just saying about the extraordinary challenge the global mining industry faces to meet the uh, demand for critical minerals for, for climate change plans, um, permitting uh, by governments is something that needs to be looked at. And certainly, I think it's true around the world and organizations like the International Energy Agency have said that governments need to look at streamlining permitting in order to help get mines into production, in order to, to meet the demand. Uh, and that's a particular challenge, I think, here in Nova Scotia, where our permitting system uh, has become one that is, in some ways, uh, contains too much red tape and is simply not efficient enough. In the 10 years that I've been in uh, this job with the Mining Association of Nova Scotia, I've never argued, we have never argued for environmental uh, regulation to be lessened in any way. We should uh, absolutely take, uh, you know, uh, as good a care of the environment as is possible. We don't dispute that at all. We completely support it. But at the same time, red tape doesn't protect the environment. That just slows down the process. We need, you know, efficient uh, regulation. We need clear rules. We need timelines that uh, facilitate business planning. Uh, so that, you know, here in Nova Scotia and around the world, we can open the hundreds of new mines that are necessary. But here's the problem. The International Energy Agency says it takes an average of about 16 and a half years to get from discovery of a mineral deposit to actually getting that deposit into production. Uh, the International Monetary Fund says it takes an average of 19 years. The federal government, uh, when it released its critical mineral strategy in the fall, says it can take as long as 25 years to get a mine into production. And so a, a mineral deposit discovered today wouldn't likely get into production until about 2040 or later based on those sorts of stats. And when we need so much of these new mines to get into production by 2030 in order to meet climate goals, uh, the permitting, you know, the, the, the timelines just don't match, right? They don't, they don't work. We need to uh, work with the government of Nova Scotia to help streamline the permitting process while absolutely ensuring the highest environmental standards continue to be fulfilled. Uh, but just ensuring that it's efficient and eliminates red tape as much as possible so that we can get mines into production and contribute to global supply and help deal with the fact that, again, there are so many uh, organizations uh, that are predicting that there are going to be critical mineral shortages, which are you know, going to be an obstacle to achieving climate goals. So we are extremely stringently regulated. We fully support that. That is as it should be. At the same time, we need to look at where the permitting system can be improved just to reduce red tape and make it more efficient so that we can get mines into production and provide the materials that uh, society needs. That's extraordinarily long time for approval. I, I, I can't imagine why anybody would even bother 
trying to invest in the industry to wait that long to get things into production. What's the main cause that 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 lengthy approval process? Is it the environmental assessment or is it just, you know, there's just no there's no timelines related to the approval process that 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 make any sense. What is it? It's a it's a combination of factors and those um those timelines from those organizations are based not just on permitting, but on, you know, uh, the exploration work involved in firming up what the resource is, the, you know, raising the financing, the development planning, all that right. kind of thing. Uh, and so governments aren't responsible for certainly a good chunk of that. Governments are responsible for the multi-year process <laughs> that the permitting process uh, takes. And to the extent that it's necessary to protect the environment, we have no obje- objection to that. But we need to make it as efficient as possible. We need to eliminate red tape and delays as much as possible. So just to give you a sense of it, you know, an environmental assessment for uh, a minor quarry project uh, will often take, for example, three to five years and cost over a million dollars and generate dozens of scientific studies. And again, to the extent that that is, you know, about protecting the environment, that's as it should be. But as much as possible, we need to try to streamline that process in order to get uh, sites into production as soon as possible, in order to provide the minerals that we need, in order to, you know, supply all of society's mineral needs. But in particular, these days, uh, the challenge of uh, providing the critical minerals needed for uh, for climate change plans is is particularly important. So it's again, it's not it's not that government is responsible for all of those extraordinary extraordinarily long timelines, but it is certainly uh, it does certainly have the um, the potential to help improve those timelines significantly by, you know, working on streamlining uh, the permitting process. And the other thing I would just say as well, you know, companies as they're going through that 16, 19, 25 year timeline are generating no revenue from that site. It's an extraordinary challenge that uh, mining companies face to um, to advance through that process, right? Obviously, when you're not generating revenue, it's pretty challenging to continue to be spending millions and ultimately hundreds of millions on developing a site. So the more government can do to help uh, streamline that process and, and get us into production faster so we can start generating revenue, that's obviously also a huge uh, benefit to, uh, to, the, to, to the challenge of trying to you know, supply the minerals that we need. Uh, can you just uh, give us an idea of the average permitting time in Nova Scotia currently and what you think it really should be? So it, it's a difficult, yeah, it's a good question and a very difficult one because it can vary uh, quite a lot. So as I say, you know, an environmental assessment will often take three to five years. Uh, that's not the only thing we go through. I mean, we, you know, also have to get industrial approvals, uh, which is another, you know, major undertaking. Um, in many ways, you know, permitting slows down the process in smaller ways. For example, if you're trying to get permitting to do exploration drilling, which, you know, you should be able to get uh, often, say, within a month, but say it takes six months or longer to get the permitting for the exploration drilling, that's a significant delay. And that those sorts of smaller permitting obstacles add up when you have a whole bunch of them. There's also, for example, in exploration, uh, an exploration season, we can't do all exploration work this time of year. So if your permitting is delayed too long, you might, you know, have to push an exploration program to the next year. So it's not just the, the big major uh, 
you know, bottlenecks in the system. It's trying to improve the permitting system overall so that we just make it more efficient uh, and streamlined. And again, not to in any way decrease the stringency of environmental regulation, but just to frankly make it match here in Nova Scotia, you know, the way it works in other Canadian provinces. Other provinces do it better than us, quite frankly, and we need to be copying, you know, the sorts of efficiencies and streamlining that other uh, jurisdictions have done so that we can, you know, do it to the same extent they do. It's not about in any way compromising environmental protection. It's about just being more efficient in our actual sort of management of the regulatory system. Uh, who would you consider a role model for, uh, for the permitting process in Canada today? Which province? Uh, you could probably argue there's good and bad in any one of them, but we would probably take any one of them over Nova Scotia's at this point, which I think is an mm. indication of the extent to which Nova Scotia needs to you know, update its permitting system and bring it more in line with the rest of the country. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really that, you know, we just, we need to, if we're going to be setting goals, uh, as the government of Nova Scotia does around climate change, right, for adoption mm-hmm. of electric vehicles and renewable energy, for example, we need to be just as committed to facilitating uh, the mining that makes achieving those goals possible. And it is uh, often the case that governments like Nova Scotia's will set uh, policies downstream, you know, for example, providing tax credits uh, to people buying electric vehicles, but not put uh, any, you know, policy thinking into supporting that process upstream where the raw materials are generated. And so what we look to uh, the, the, the government of Nova Scotia and the government of Canada to do is to think more about the upstream upstream part of it. You're not going to meet the electric vehicle and renewable energy goals if we don't deal with the generation of the raw materials in the first place. And so it's really about, I think, governments taking a more holistic view. It's easy to set goals. Anybody can set goals. The question is, how are you actually going to achieve them? And clearly, you know, mining is essential to that process. And so we need governments to look at it that way. And I will give credit, by the way, to the federal government, uh, who in the last year in particular has really... Um, wrapped its head around that and made significant investments in uh, supporting critical minerals uh, exploration and uh, mining in Canada. Um, and we just look to the government of Nova Scotia to similarly uh, acknowledge that we need to uh, do a better job supporting exploration and extraction of critical minerals if we're going to achieve the goals that the government says it wants to achieve. Uh, we've talked already a little bit about this, but the environmental impact of mining is perceived to be unfavorable. Uh, by a lot of the public. Can you give us uh, some examples of how the industry is addressing the continuing concerns related to the environmental impact of mining? And also maybe give us a couple of examples of uh, mine sites or quarries that have been reclaimed uh, once uh, once the mining potential is uh, depleted. So again, we face as an industry the misconceptions uh, about mining that uh, you know come from historical sites not having been properly taken care of and not having been reclaimed, uh, and that's a, a very unfortunate legacy that uh, of the industry, um, and we can't change that in effect, but we can change how we operate today, and that's really uh, the, our focus. And so again, the way the industry operates and the way the industry is regulated is completely different from what it was historically. And it's a a bit funny because often on social media, I will see people say that, you know, uh, there should be this or that, you know, to help ensure the mining industry takes proper care of the environment. Most of the time, the things people suggest in that vein 
are things that already exist and that have existed for mm. years. And, and so again, it's a challenge on our part uh, to do the public education to help people understand that. And let me give you a couple examples. So for example, uh, before mining companies in Nova Scotia uh, can even start uh, working on a site, they have to get government approval of a reclamation plan. And so before we even start mining, before we even start clearing a site in preparation for building a mine, the vision has to be there for what the site will be after extraction is done, how it will be reclaimed, what it will look like, what its other potential uses are, and that has to be approved by uh, the provincial government. And so that thinking is built into the process, and it wasn't historically, obviously. Right? Historically, you were just focused on, on you know, the profit side of the equation, and there was really no thought to what to do with the site afterwards. But that's completely different today, and it has been for several decades. Uh, mining companies, again, before starting uh, any kind of operations, have to post reclamation bonds, which is basically money in escrow. It's money that they have to put up that the government in, you know, then has access to, so that in a worst-case scenario and a mining company were to go bankrupt, the government has the company's money, not taxpayers, the company's money to reclaim the site. So whatever happens to the company, the site will still be properly reclaimed and taken care of from an environmental perspective. And again, those are two things that I often hear people say, you know, need to be imposed on uh, the industry. <laughs> it's existed for several decades and we embrace it. It's absolutely as it should be. Uh, another uh, thing which I think a lot of people just don't realize is that, you know, standard practice in the industry today is what we call progressive reclamation, which means that as you mine out uh, part of the site and complete extraction in that area, you generally reclaim it while you continue to do extraction in other parts of the mine. And that means that reclamation is sort of built into, you know, the daily activity of uh, most mine sites. It means that the overall footprint of the mine is always uh, being limited by, you know, returning uh, parts of it to nature as you proceed. Uh, and that's something that, again, is just standard practice in the industry today. Uh, we're also often able with modern mines to fix the mistakes of the past. And so one of the challenges uh, that gets talked about in context of gold mining is the historical tailings. Uh, which are really just sort of what's left over from the pro process of, uh, of milling the ore in order to extract the gold. Uh, and we completely agree the, uh, you know, the historical tailings at Nova Scotia's uh, gold mines from a century, a century and a half ago uh, are a very unfortunate legacy. But again, have nothing to do with how the industry operates today. But a modern gold mine like that, which is operating at, the, uh, at, at uh, Moose River, is actually able to clean up those historical tailings. The, uh, the company, St. Barbara, dug up the old historical tailings from a century or more ago and placed them inside their tailings management facility, which is specifically engineered uh, to prevent them and the modern tailings from interacting with the environment. So it's an example of how we're actually able to help fix the mistakes of the past by having uh, you know, the science and technology and environmental awareness that we have today. Uh, there are also a bunch of uh, examples in Nova Scotia where historical coal mines, which again were not reclaimed uh, in, in past generations, have resulted in subsidence issues and modern coal mines have been able to go in, extract the remaining coal so that the company, you know, makes the money it needs in order to operate and at the same time deal with those uh, subsidence issues and to reclaim the land and stabilize it so that it can be built on. And there are a bunch of examples of these. Uh, but the one that's still currently in production is, in fact, the Stellarton coal mine, uh, which has been operating since uh, 1996. And it's in its final stages today. But anyone who knows uh, Stellarton well will know that 
the town's water tower and the Pioneer Coal Athletic Field is actually built on a reclaimed part of the modern, modern Stellarton coal mine. And that whole site has been, uh, you know, reclaimed and stabilized in a way that, first of all, it looks fantastic. It's been, you know, returned to nature, but it's also probably ultimately going to be built on. But the land will have been stabilized and dealt with properly so that uh, you can safely do that. And so, yeah, modern mines, uh, you know, with again, with the science and technology we have today and the understanding of the need to take care of the environment can even fix, uh, in many cases, the uh, the mistakes that were made in the past by those those historical miners that just didn't just didn't know any better and frankly didn't have the science and technology to do it right anyway. And we have many, many examples, uh, those ones and many more, frankly, uh, on our educational website, which is notyourgrandfathersmining.ca. Uh, we have a page on that site which has dozens of examples of reclaimed mines and quarries in Nova Scotia. We also have uh, a great time-lapse video uh, on uh, notyourgrandfathersmining.ca that shows some of the reclamation work being done at the Stellarton coal mine. So you can actually see uh, the process by which modern uh, reclamation is done. Now that's great. Uh, that's very helpful. Uh, um, moving on to another area uh, with uh, geopolitical concerns and skyrocketing demand straining existing supply chains, the federal government recently announced a $4 billion fund to help find and develop critical min minerals to protect and secure the supply chain in Canada that will help power everything from electric vehicles to solar panels, wind turbines, and nuclear power. The federal government is offering a 30% tax credit for critical minerals such as nickel, lithium, cobalt, cobalt uh, uh, graphite, rare earth elements, and uranium. That's a mouthful. What are the opportunities for Nova Scotia to develop some of these uh, critical uh, minerals, Sean? Well, we have great potential for it. I mean, as I said, we uh, have historically had mines uh, for things that are now considered critical minerals. They weren't called critical minerals uh, back then. That's a relatively new term. But, you know, mm -hmm. we have had many mines for things like copper and graphite and tungsten and manganese. And so we know it's there in our geology. We often say in the mining industry that new mines are often found next to old mines. And what mm. that means is that, you know, the, the historical mines proved that there's a resource there. But again, they lacked the science and technology back then to fully find the deposit, to fully extract it. And so, so much of modern mineral exploration takes place at the site of historical mines because you have a certain amount of data and knowledge about what's there. And with the, you know, the tools and the science that we have today, we can then uh, do, uh, you know, a much better job understanding the deposit, figuring out what's there, extracting it, and of course, taking proper care of the environment. So there is great potential in Nova Scotia. As I said, we hope to get back into extracting critical minerals this year when uh, the Gaze uh, River zinc mine is expected to get into uh, production in the second half of the year. Uh, again, the East Kempville tin mine is another relatively modern example that was late 80s, early uh, 90s when that was last in uh, production. So we absolutely have uh, the potential to contribute to global supply of these critical minerals. And I, I think, frankly, we have a responsibility to do so. This is a huge global challenge uh, that we face in order to find enough critical minerals and to find them fast enough, frankly, uh, to, uh, to fulfill climate change uh, goals being set by governments like Nova Scotia's. Uh, and we have a responsibility to do what we can to help uh, support that. And so it's it's an exciting time. You know, we, we can we can be, be a player in this. 
but we need you know to get the support of uh, the federal and provincial governments in making uh, Nova Scotia a more attractive jurisdiction for uh, the global mining industry uh, to invest in. But the potential's there, and we're excited to uh, you know even as soon as this year get back into extracting critical minerals when the zinc mine hopefully gets going. Uh, among the opportunities that you outline, which ones hold the greatest promise, uh, promise for the province in terms of economic opportunity? Um, it's not, I don't think that we have uh, more potential in some areas than others. It's more that we need to let the process unfold. And so when you have, for example, a past producing, like, like, like we do in Gaze River, the past producing zinc mine or the uh, tin mine in East Kempville, those operated within recent decades. And so uh, there's more knowledge of the deposits. There's there's infrastructure on site, frankly, at both those places. So they're much easier and less expensive to get back into production than, you know, what would be more or less a greenfield exploration project, for example. So, you know, the greatest, you know, uh, promise in a sense would be, you know, those two sites as, as really good examples because they produced in relatively recent history. Uh, but again, you know, we've had so many of these uh, critical minerals mines historically, um, uh, you know, and it's really more just that we need to let the uh, the mineral exploration process and uh, unfold so that, you know, those deposits can be uh, thoroughly explored using, you know, the modern techniques and, and tools that we have, and hopefully that they can be gotten into production again soon. But again, you know, we talked about how long it takes to get, you know, mines into production. Uh, clearly, when you have a past producing site and a site that produced relatively recently that already has some level of permitting in place and a certain amount of infrastructure on site, that uh, dramatically shortens the time frame to get a, a site into production. And a site where we haven't mined for a century is obviously going to take longer because there's just more that needs to be done. But again, the potential's there. And I think, uh, you know, there's all kinds of great things that can happen in Nova Scotia in terms of creating jobs and economic opportunity. Uh, with critical minerals, uh, while also providing, again, the materials that we need in order to, to build those electric vehicles and the renewable energy systems. As you know, the province of Nova Scotia instituted a ban on the mining of uranium in the, I think, the 80s. It's clear that the majority of Nova Scotians continue to be concerned about the safety of uh, mining uranium. Yet the government of Canada is now seeking more uranium mining to support the nuclear energy sector, which is expected to play a larger role in achieving net zero emissions by 2050. In, in, fact, uh, in fact, we've done a couple of interesting podcasts on small modular reactors, uh, which is, uh, which is uh, I think, a really big opportunity for this region. Uh, where is uh, uranium currently being mined in Canada, and what is the potential for uranium mining in Nova Scotia? So, yeah, back I'll give you the, the history to, to have the context. Back in the late 1970s and early 80s, there was actually a, a uranium exploration boom in Nova Scotia. Companies like mm. Shell and Esso came here and spent tens of millions of dollars on uranium exploration they found occurrences of it all over the province, and there was a lot of uh, interest in it at the time. Unfortunately, the uh, provincial government of the day announced in the middle of the 1981 provincial election that it was going to impose a moratorium on uranium uh, exploration and uh, mining, and they uh, formalized that in 1982. And we have had a, a moratorium and then in 2009, a legislated ban on uranium uh, for four decades now. Nothing could be uh, more political than making an announcement like that in the middle of an election campaign. 
the the ban is not based on science. It's not based on uh, legitimate uh, concerns or scientific evidence. It's purely based on politics and misconceptions and unfounded fears about uranium. Uh, Canada, in fact, Saskatchewan specifically, has been one of the largest providers of uranium since the 1950s. It was Saskatchewan was the largest provider for many years. Uh, today, I believe it's uh, number two globally. But that's a seven-decade run of uranium mining in Saskatchewan on a massive scale um, that has, you know, been done responsibly and has taken proper care of the environment and provided an essential uh, material. And there's no reason why, you know, we could not do similarly in Nova Scotia if the uranium ban were lifted and if the exploration then proved that we have the deposits uh, that would be economically viable. Uranium is talked about a lot these days in context of nuclear energy. Nuclear, of course, is uh, emissions-free uh, while it's operating, and experts around the world have argued that we need more nuclear energy in order to achieve net zero. The International Energy Agency has said that we need to double uh, nuclear power around the world. The Government of Canada, as you said, is committed to nuclear power and small modular nuclear reactors as a particularly exciting uh, example of that. Uh, Natural Resources Canada says that uranium is a critical mineral because of its use as a nuclear fuel. Uh, Japan uh, made clear in December that it's going to get back into nuclear in a big way. Nuclear power currently provides about 7% of Japan's energy, and they hope by 2030 to raise that to 20 to 22%. Uh, on and on and on. Experts around the world are saying that nuclear is essential to uh, meeting climate goals, and that uh, therefore uranium is essential as the key nuclear fuel. Despite that, we continue to have this ban in Nova Scotia. It, again, just isn't based on uh, anything anything uh, sensible. Any, it's not based on science. It's just, you know, a legacy of 40 years ago. And the government of Nova Scotia really needs to revisit it and, and lift the ban. Uh, uranium, uh, and, and a lot of people I don't think are aware, uranium actually has a lot of uses. Again, nuclear power is kind of the first one that would generally come to mind. Uh, but nuclear uranium is actually used, for example, in many ways in uh, providing health care. Um, you know, by using uranium to irradiate uh, small materials, we are able to do in Canada about 15,000 radiation therapy treatments for cancer patients each year. It helps uh, create the uh, key ingredient in smoke detectors that make smoke detectors work. And so, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which uh, uranium benefits us uh, day to day. And so it's there really just is no basis for the government to continue the ban. So we do hope that it will come back to it and just acknowledge, you know, that... <laughs> 70 years of experience in uranium mining in Saskatchewan can't be wrong, right? And the and the global push to, in fact, you know, dramatically increase nuclear power is something that Nova Scotia has the potential to support. We have been prevented for 40 years from doing uranium exploration, so I can't tell you today that if the ban were lifted, we would be able to open a uranium mine. We need to do that exploration work and be given the opportunity to do so. But you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of uranium was found in that uh, exploration boom back in the late 70s and early 80s. And so we need the government to lift uh, the ban and let that continue. And the other thing, too, is that if the government were to lift the ban, it would send a signal to the global mining industry, um, not just about uranium, but about Nova Scotia as a jurisdiction that we're going to make decisions based on science. We're not going to uh, continue to make decisions based on politics or misconceptions that, that Nova Scotia wants uh, the investment and opportunity that the global mining industry can bring. And it's going to make decisions based on science. That would be a very powerful signal for the government of Nova Scotia to send by lifting the uranium ban.
Uh, moving on to another topic, the, the provincial government has has a stated goal of protecting 20% of the land uh, forever, and uh, with its recent announcement, has now achieved 13% of the land in Nova Scotia protected for for posterity, I guess. Your association has been advocating for a more balanced approach to land uh, protection. Can you tell us what you mean by um, a more balanced approach and maybe give a, a, an example or two of how it can be become more balanced? Yeah, so I want to be clear. We support the provincial government's protected areas plan. I mean, you know, we all want to protect the environment. Uh, we're all proud Nova Scotians and want to, you know, maintain the beauty of our province. And there's no debate over that. At the same time, uh, we have to acknowledge that there is an economic cost uh, to protecting land. It means that we can't use land for other purposes. And obviously, uh, our focus is mining and quarrying, but that also you know, prevents uh, the harvesting of, uh, of trees in the forestry industry. It prevents, you know, for example, the building of housing uh, to help address our housing uh, challenges and, and provide homes for our growing population. There are lots of uses of land, and when we protect it, um, that's that's perfectly legitimate, but there are other ways in which land can also be used and, and the protection prevents that. And so when the provincial government created its protected areas plan in 2013, uh, again, we support it, but we don't feel the government sufficiently took into account economic considerations when it chose the lands uh, for protection. And so the protected areas plan includes many uh, areas that are in fact former mines and quarries uh, lands that were, in fact, forestry clear cuts. Uh, there are pipeline corridors uh, within the protected areas. There are all kinds of lands within the protected areas plan that traditionally had economic uses and which, you know, were they not either protected or slated for protection, would likely continue to be used for economic uses. And so uh, from our perspective, we did the analysis of it and found that five and a half percent of all known mineral occurrences in the province are overlapped by the provincial government's protected areas plan. Uh, the provincial government itself has done analyses of a lot of the lands and found that many of them have medium to high mineral potential. And so it was aware that it was gonna have that impact. Interestingly, in an analysis we did last year, we found that there are over 400 known critical mineral occurrences that are impacted by the protected areas plan. So again, sites uh, that, you know, you know, occurrences of copper and manganese and tungsten and all these kinds of minerals, which again are in such uh, high demand these days in order to uh, address, uh, you know, concerns about climate change. And so when you have, you know, that kind of impact on our industry and, and the economy more broadly, we just think it's about balance. We, we can all agree on the importance of uh, protecting the beauty of the province and uh, highly ecological value lands. But there are also lots of lands within the protected areas plan that aren't highly uh, valuable ecologically, that are traditionally economic lands. And so to have a little bit of flexibility in the protected areas plan uh, that would make it possible for mining and exploration companies to access those lands, do additional exploration, maybe do development, uh, so that we can extract those minerals that we need, especially, I think, you know, the critical minerals uh, that are so needed for addressing climate change. Uh, we just think that makes sense. Uh, most likely, if that were ever to be allowed, you know, after extraction were done at a site, you would then reclaim it, return it to nature, and it would probably become protected again. And there are examples of this. I mean, the British, British Columbia has a mine uh, that is within a provincial park, uh, and it was sort of given, when the park was created, the mine was sort of given a special exemption so that it could continue to operate on the understanding that it would probably be reclaimed 
in the end and become you know part of the park. Uh, there is a uh, federal park actually up north, which uh, again the uh, park was established around what was at that point a mineral exploration site. Uh, but the site that was uh, you know being explored was allowed to continue. Uh, to do the exploration and to put a road in so that the site would be accessible by vehicles. And again, you know, if, if mining takes place there at the end of that cycle, uh, the land would be uh, reclaimed and, and then become part of the park. And so, you know, this sort of just, it's about just balance, right? It's just about having sort of a, a balanced, pragmatic approach to these things that would ensure the environmental goals are, are achieved. We all agree on that. But at the same time, we have to look at, you know, the economic goals, the need to uh, create jobs for Nova Scotians, to generate revenues, to pay for things like health and education. And in particular, again, these days, the focus on critical minerals and the importance of trying to uh, generate enough critical minerals globally that we can achieve our climate goals. And I think that creates an interesting question. You know, what is best for the environment? Is it protecting uh, a zinc deposit or a copper deposit, or is it allowing uh, that mineral to be extracted and contributed to the fight against climate change um, and then, you know, reclaimed and, you know, protected afterwards. So those are the sorts right. of, you know, challenging issues I think the Protected Areas Plan uh, creates. The, uh, you know, the, the dialogue around the Protected Areas Plan, unfortunately, has been in many ways somewhat simplistic. It just sort of um, focuses completely on protection and not on the fact that there may be trade-offs here that we should have a sophisticated science-based discussion about. And so that's what we mean about, you know, having some basic balance and flexibility in, in uh, protected areas policy. Again, a couple of different topics we want to cover here before we uh, finish up. Uh, there's a, there was a mineral resource development fund that was established in Nova Scotia in 2012, I believe, and expanded significantly in 2018. Why is this fund important to Nova Scotia? So the, Min the Mineral Resources Development Fund is a grant program that supports uh, mineral prospecting and exploration. It also supports various other minerals related activities like uh, research and education and creating jobs for uh, students in areas like uh, geology. Uh, it's a terrific grant program um, that's, that's playing an important role in supporting exploration in the province. It's helping us find those critical minerals deposits. And it's also, uh, you know, uh, the sort of program that is very common in other jurisdictions. It's something that Nova Scotia did not have for a long time. Um, but it's the sort of thing, you know, that is so common in other jurisdictions. It's really kind of an essential tool to attracting investment um, to help, uh, you know, facilitate the exploration that we need into our geology to, to find the minerals that ultimately we need both for society and for economic reasons. Another related item, I guess, is the... Uh... The Atlantic Canada Investment Credit, which uh, really the mining industry does not currently qualify for, but did prior to 2012, I believe. Uh, what changed and why is that important to the mining industry? So mining in Atlantic Canada was eligible for the Atlantic Investment Tax Credit uh, going all the way back to the 1970s. It's a tax credit, a 10% tax credit. Uh, that supports uh, capital intensive industries like forestry and manufacturing and, and various others. Uh, we were eligible for it for several decades until the federal government uh, dropped us from it in 2012, not for uh, any uh, discernible reason. Um, and the challenge is that, you know, mining is an extremely capital in intensive mm. uh, business. I mean, 
all the vehicles that you see on a Nova Scotia mine site generally cost somewhere between one and five million dollars each. Uh, it's a very challenging, you know, and expensive industry. And so something like the Atlantic Investment Tax Credit was really helpful at helping defray some of that cost so that it made it easier for uh, companies to get into production and to operate. Um, and it strengthens the business case for doing mineral exploration in Nova Scotia. So we've been asking uh, the, uh, the federal government to re-add us to the Atlantic Investment Tax Credit. It has not been done yet, um, but we see it as an important support to the industry. Uh, the other thing is that um, in Nova Scotia, the provincial government established an equivalent provincial program in 2015 called the Capital Investment Tax Credit. And unfortunately, from our perspective, which is a great program um, and there for the, the same reasons, but uh, unfortunately, from our perspective, uh, for administrative reasons, the provincial government aligned its eligibility criteria with the federal Atlantic Investment Tax Credit. And so because we had been dropped from the AITC, we therefore are not eligible for the CITC. And that's another, the provincial program is another 15% uh, tax credit on capital investments. So combined, we're missing out on 25% uh, in capital uh, tax credits. Uh, and to put that in perspective, you know, the Tukoy gold mine in Moose River was about $140 million uh, build when that uh, was put into production in 2017. Uh, Signal Gold's uh, Goldbro Gold Project, I think, is about a $270 million project. This is very, very challenging, uh, expensive business with, as we talked about earlier, long lead times in which you generate no revenue. So any support like that that governments can offer uh, to help defray some of those costs and strengthen the business case for wanting to to work uh, in this province is hugely helpful. So we do hope that the federal government and the provincial governments will sort that out and make us eligible for those two programs again. One of the issues uh, your association is dealing with is how the industry is taxed. Can you tell us about the current taxation uh, regime and how it compares elsewhere in Canada and perhaps what changes uh, you might be advocating for? So again, you know, we're a very expensive industry. It's just the nature of, uh, of the, the business that, you know, we have uh, hundreds of millions of dollars usually in, in getting a, a site up and running and then continuing to operate it. And so any uh, investor, any exploration or mining company is going to look at where it can operate most, um, uh, you know, the least expensively and with the highest profit. Um, and so we need to be careful in, in a jurisdiction like Nova Scotia not to price ourselves out of the market. So we have, of course, the second highest corporate tax in Canada, which, uh, you know, obviously is a consideration for uh, our industry and for for all others. This isn't unique to us, certainly. And we also, uh, you know, again, you know, we look to the government to provide some of the basic supports that uh, other provinces give to their mining industries to help defray some of the costs of operating here. We don't really have a specific uh, complaints related to how mining is taxed. It's really more the general taxation um, uh, issue that any number of <laughs> any number of industries or chambers of commerce would also uh, be able to speak to knowledgeably. But you know, at the end of the day, we need to be doing uh, everything we can to attract the uh, mineral exploration and the investment to Nova Scotia to create the jobs and create the economic opportunity. We also, uh, by the way, think it's really important that. We ensure mineral supply is ethical. The more uh, you know, mining we do in places like Nova Scotia and Canada and in Western democracies, the less will have to be done in countries that do not take proper care of the environment and don't take care of worker safety. 
the obvious example of this, and it's a very sad one, is cobalt. Cobalt is a mineral that is used in uh, lithium ion batteries. It's in electric vehicle batteries. It's in uh, the batteries that are in our cell phones. 70% of global cobalt supply comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where it is estimated that about 40,000 children work in the cobalt mines. It's an mm. utter disgrace, and yet it is very likely that there are Nova Scotians walking around today with cell phones in their pockets that contains cobalt mined by children. It's uh, a stark reminder that we need to do more mining in places like Nova Scotia and Canada to reduce the mining there and to help improve uh, both the environmental management, because we do mining right here, which they don't do in a place like the DRC and in lots of other uh, parts of the world, uh, and to ensure that the ethical supply of, uh, of minerals. So yeah, if it's, and, and the problem is that if it's, you know, a lot cheaper to go to a country that has no environmental regulations or, or worker safety regulations, or that uses child labor, more minerals will be mined there than will be mined here. And that's, you know, all part and parcel of the challenge related to taxation and lots of other issues, frankly, that we need to make working in Nova Scotia and in Canada and in Western democracies more attractive than what it has been in recent decades. Uh, finally, Sean, uh, looking ahead, what are the key priorities for your association uh, in the next 12 months? So as an association, our focus is really on trying to help Nova Scotians understand the industry, how different the modern mining industry is from the historical uh, industry and the uh, practices and standards that simply, you know, were, were common back then, but are completely unacceptable to us now. And so that's a huge part of what we need to do to help Nova Scotians understand why they in fact should support the mining industry and be excited when they see uh, activity in it, when they see jobs being created and when they see minerals being extracted here that are going to contribute to the things in their daily life. As an industry uh, in general, again, critical minerals are such a huge focus for us, uh, both here in Nova Scotia and around the world. Uh, the climate change goals that are being set and that people applaud um, are hugely challenging to achieve. And, uh, and there's, you know, for those who want to learn about it, there are countless reports that you can find online by experts like the International Energy Agency. Uh, but, you know, the, the commitments being made by governments like Nova Scotia's are simply not achievable today. We need a huge global effort in order to open hundreds of new mines to meet the uh, mineral supply challenge that uh, that global climate plans require. And Nova Scotia, you know, has the potential to uh, to contribute to that and to play a role. And I think we have a responsibility to do so. So those are the things that we're focused on. It's uh, it's really exciting, uh, interesting work. And uh, yeah, we just hope to, to keep creating good news for Nova Scotians and jobs for Nova Scotians uh, uh, in 2023 and going forward. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining us on the Insights Podcast and providing our listeners with an overview of the mining industry in Nova Scotia and its potential. You know, I think uh, it is an untold story. It's one of the reasons we wanted to do this. And we're going to do a series, I think, of, of podcasts on the mining industry across Atlantic Canada. So you're first up. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we will continue to follow your industry with great interest. Thanks so much for having me, Don. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. And you can hear past episodes and follow the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And remember to submit your questions for David and Don about the region's economy in 2023. You can send them by email to news at huddle.today. That's news at huddle.today. And thanks for listening. 
Don and David will be back again next week.